Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Carl Carlson. And this is Fred Shankleberg. Hey, Carl. Hey, Fred. Happy Monday morning. Yeah, Monday morning it is. I was working on um, some of the uh, replies to some of the questions I get on FMEA, which, you know, I get four or five a week, mm-hmm. usually. And uh, one of them was particularly interesting, and we had I had to put some thought to it as to how to answer it, which is fun. And uh, and I just thought I'd share that with you on the uh, podcast. Uh, this is a subject of, is it appropriate to use reliability predictions as input to an FMEA? And if so, in what context? And if not, why? And it was a. It came up because I I offer checklists as part of preparation for FMEA. It's mm-hmm. downloadable from AscendoReliability.com, and the, one of the checklists is called Gather Information. And that checklist says Gather the Field Failure Data Information, and I have it. I have a reason for that, and it has to do with those are potential failure modes. Mm-hmm. But the, the reader is saying, well, yeah, but they also have reliability information as part of the field. And, and, and in his work, they do reliability predictions for subsystems and components. And why isn't that input? Well, should I add that to the checklist? He's basically saying. Mm-hmm. So that was the context of the question. It was fun to think about because that's going on a lot. I mean, reliability predictions are part of the body of knowledge yeah unfortunately (laughs) when we're talking about parts count or parts stress count or anything where you got individual component failure rates usually in fits right in failures and time units um that's it's right up there with mtbf for me it's the, the you know although the i can see a, a way that those might be useful, but it doesn't supplant doing the proper work <laughs> of what is the failure rates. And, and well, let, let's start with that, then. That's interesting. So in what way would you see it possibly useful? Well, if somebody didn't know the relative potential for failure of two components, the caveat is still very real, is that you have reasonable, up-to-date information about the potential difference in failure rates, expected failure rates. Now, if the parts count prediction data is collected from field failures in your industry, in your similar kinds of circumstances, then the relative difference of those two failure rates will probably, and I'm doing a lot of caveats and stars and smoke and mirrors type stuff for this logic, it gives you a relative difference in those ones. This one is it will probably fail more often than part B. And in an FMEA, oftentimes we're just rank ordering these things. It's not a hard and fast rule if this is at five fit and this one's at 20 fit. We don't put those numbers in the occurrence rating. We put a, a relative ranking of one to five or one to 10, something like that. But if they're both relatively low and one is slightly higher than the other one or significantly higher than the other one, 
that can be used as backstop for your engineering judgment of, well, I don't have any clue what the relative ranking of these two are. And so a database or better would be field data uh, of your own components, uh, which very few people seem to want to do anymore. That's where I see it as potentially useful. But, but inputting the actual failure rates into the occurrence rankings, I think that's just straight on uh, folly, absolute total folly. Oh, <laughs> that's well, my opinion. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and let me, let me comment on that. They, uh, there's so many things, there's so many dimensions to this conversation. I'll mention that there's a type of FMEA called supportability or maintenance where you're doing the FMEA for a different purpose than, say, a design FMEA. A design FMEA, you want to improve the design. You have some type of new design or a change to the design, and, and you're going to try to improve it or make sure it's robust. A supportability FMEA or maintenance, and there's other names for them, they're, they're focused on what's the supportability strategy. And it often involves RCM, Reliability Centered Maintenance, as part of the procedure. And here you're looking for a maintenance strategy. So you're going to want to know the component failure rate and the failure rates, even if there's no change, there's no uh, no change to the component. Well, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. But I disagree with that you want to know the failure rate. Um, RCM and and supportability really hinges on the decision of, is this a decreasing failure rate or increasing failure rate? And over what period? You want the distribution of yes. that. A failure rate is just a single point number and it's a grand average of whatever it was averaged over. It's pretty Excellent. not useful at all for, for supportability. You know? um, Excellent point. There's a time base to it and it, the failure distribution, this is the problem with some RCM software, yep, and it it's a problem. It's a problem more broader than that, yeah. Which is failure distribution is what you're looking for, not failure rate, right? And you know, and a good supportability FMEA is is looking at well, what are the ones that are associated with installation, and that we need to focus on getting that right, so we don't have this out of box type failures or power up failures. And vice versa is like, well, we know we've got a lot of bearings and we know that those wear out and, and we're now interested in what's our characteristic life for that wear out mechanism. But it's, it's a far cry from going to parts count predictions. And yes. now if you expand that term of predictions to mean include failure rate or failure distributions and understanding failure mechanisms and how they behave, yeah, then you're okay. But unfortunately, I think I interpreted that email like you did and they're they're using you know hope i'm really hoping they aren't using mail handbook 217 but there's plenty of software out there that gives you these you know just god awful databases of random numbers basically and, and I, I can't come across harsh enough against predictions based on parts count <laughs> they're, yes they're yes. wrong in so many ways but that's oh, yeah. not what we're talking about so let me try to try to say this again because I didn't mean to get caught caught up in the failure rate statement. And you're totally correct. We want to focus on failure distribution or some type of profile uh, to have meaningful data. The what I was getting towards is the portion of the FMEA 
that I'll call it low risk. Maybe there's a component that has no changes. In a DF, design FMA, you, you could ignore that. If there's, if you have, if if it's a component that that uh, is not doesn't have any preliminary risk to it. Right, it's it performing well on your previous products. So you're not yeah, pushing it yeah. harder, and it's yeah. And we're not changing the environment. We're not changing materials, and. So in a design FMA, we would typically skip, we would ignore that portion and we would go towards the higher risk because mm -hmm. we want to improve the design of the system or design of the components that have been changed in some way. On a supportability FMA, you still need to know the parts, uh, the spare parts analysis. And so you, even though that component hasn't changed, you would need to know how often it fails in some way so that you could uh, develop a good um Spare parts. Right. But that's a whole Strategy. different analysis. That's usually not using predictions. Yes. So the, the, we get into this on the occurrence rating in an FMEA. And in my view, the occurrence rating in an FMEA is subjective. And the reason for that, and I'm focusing on a design FMEA in this conversation right now, or even a process FMEA. Because in those types of FMEAs, we're going to focus on the changes, the risk, the areas of new technology, the areas of new environment, and because those are where the, the risk is. If, if you have a purely carryover portion, uh, then the, the previous FMEA still applies, or it's not an area of higher risk to justify the resources to do an FMEA. And so the occurrence rating is usually subjective because we have to take into account the degree of new technology, the degree of new environment. We're going to take into account the actual field failures from the past, but only within the context of we've that's input because we've made some changes. So it won't be totally relevant. Yeah. We're also going to look at the what's called prevention controls in the FMEI, which is what the current plans are to address the failure mode and cause. And all those things come together in this subjective rating called occurrence. What doesn't come in is the failure, uh, the, the reliability prediction. Right, yeah, it, the actual prediction number doesn't, no. And, but I think there's another factor and that goes in that makes it, I, in my mind, very subjective, is what's our knowledge of it? If we really don't know, and it, and, you know, we're sitting around the table and or we're doing a quick Google search or whatever, and we go, well, it could be really high and catastrophic, or it might be okay. We just don't know. Then rank it high so that you come back and look at it. Because if you say, well, it might be low and we will we'll mark it down as a low occurrence rating, it might not rise to the top that you pay any attention to it. So I think it's the subjective part is includes we just don't know. Yeah. And, and that's there, there, there's definitely a, a necessary humility on that. You have to understand something you don't know before you can begin to get the knowledge about it. And that's what and, makes the predictions, especially parts count predictions, insidious in my mind, is that it gives you this false sense that you know it. You know, So I take a, a, a vendor data set, and I talk to vendors that they just basically make it up. You know, and some do a really good job. They do really nice testing and they give you the distribution. But most of them go, well, we looked it up in Mill Handbook 217 from 25 years ago and it says it's at 28 fit. They don't know. It could be way better than that. It could be way worse than that. So 
the problem is, is that using the prediction to inform the occurrence rating is throwing a, a false sense of knowledge in there. That's yeah, where the, I really upset, don't like this idea. To use a phrase I've heard, it camouflages a hole. Yeah. You have a hole there, but it's camouflaged, and, yeah. you, and you're going to fall into it. Right. Um, I, I have a story to share with you, and then, then another comment on this. I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I took over the General Motors Reliability Group back in 1989, the, uh, the it was a group of about 12 or 13 engineers. So it was a small group back then. And uh, they were mostly from Chevrolet Engineering. That um, the, the previous person who ran the group passed away. So I took over for him. And the entirety of their reliability work was predictions based on parts count. In oh, my gosh. That's, that's what they did. They <laughs> counted the parts. And then they did a that complexity. They called it parts complexity. Yeah. Um, that was the... Then they, they did a prediction of DPTV, defects per thousand vehicles, which was the metric that was yeah. being used. And I looked at that, and, and I, we could talk about that for oh at yeah, least an yeah. Hour that's that's another of couple the, of episodes. But yeah, I, I remember the first time I ran into a parts comp prediction, and I went down, and I Dick Moss was still at HP, and I walked down to his offices. What is this? This doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. Why do we even have this in our portfolio and he said you know the actual number you get out of it is pretty worthless but the idea of using less parts to improve reliability has validity and keeping it cooler for electronics anyway has validity so those two if it influences design to use less parts and keep it cool then it's all good and he said oh but then I saw how they were using it, and I'm like, uh, they're That's not using it the, that way. <laughs> there ends the rub. Is yeah. The, is, I, I agree with what Dick Moss was saying there. Sim, sim, obviously, a, a simpler part, simpler system is going to have less. It's going to correlate to a, a lower. Well, I mean, it, it, there's all kinds of innovations, and, in, in, you know, our, our vehicles these days, though, are, are getting so much electronics and, and, and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And, and just the entertainment system's probably got as many parts in it as the rest of the vehicle. Um, but it, the brake systems and transmissions and all kinds of other major components of vehicles have gotten simpler and more elegant in their designs as, as those designs evolve. I'm thinking of a, a class I took, and this was back in the, in the early 90s. Professor came out with a... a a Black and Decker drill from the fifties. It was in a box, all disassembled. And he goes, and he counted all the parts. And he says, "There's like eighteen different kinds of screws and attachments and all that other stuff." And he says, "And I apologize for not having it back together, but I couldn't figure out how to reassemble it correctly." <laughs> and then he pulled out a new one, Black and Decker one, and it had five parts. It had the t- clamshell for the case, the trigger mechanism, a transmission. Uh, and the motor uh, uh, clutch part was all one piece, and then the, the chuck. And he goes, it took me about four seconds to put it back together and about four seconds to put the one screw, which is probably a legal requirement, to hold it all together. And, mm. it, and it was as good or better than the 1950s one. <clears throat> but way easier to manufacture, way easier to source, way, I mean, it had all kinds of cool benefits to it. So I think there's a natural progression to make things simpler and easier. 
and evolved parts. Even even capacitors have gotten more elegant in their internal designs than they used to be, with all mm-hmm. kinds of benefits to it. So it's yeah, we're not going to make a car that only has five parts. Um, well, but maybe. if you have two, if you have two approaches, and one is simpler than the other, all thing all other things equal, then the simpler one is 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 the way to go. But of course, all other things aren't necessarily equal. That's right. There's a lot of factors going. I had two more thoughts that came to mind on okay. this. One is when you look at component reliability as input to an FMEA, the the concern I have is what we're doing the occurrence rating on is the failure mode due to a, a particular cause. Mm-hmm. So you have a failure mode and a cause. And that cause can have a failure mechanism. And that's really important in an FMEA. So we're basically assessing the likelihood of the failure mode due to this cause during the the lifetime of the unit. That's different than the component reliability. Because the component reliability is the component, whereas the occurrence rating is logically connected in an FMEA to the cause. And that is so important, a difference, that it sometimes gets... Missed over. You see that in predictions is somebody will say, oh, my, our capacitors are a real problem that rises to the top. And it's because there's a lot of capacitors in, a, in, the, in electronic systems. Sure. But many of them, if they fall off the board, it might affect the EMI radiation coming off of the emitted radiation coming off of it or slightly on timing, but the software accounts for it. You know, many, many capacitors are there just in case. Now, some are critical to the functionality. So it really depends on which one fails. I'm thinking of a ball grid array, a thousand pins on it, a thousand pins on it. And if one of the ground pins of which there's a hundred fail, nobody will notice. But if one of the key signaling traces fails, then we'll know immediately. So you miss that when you use... uh, the component level failure rates, because it's the, like you're saying, it's connected logically to something the customer or the consumer or the user will experience, a failure mode. Yes, yeah, so so important. The other thing is assumptions. And the and I wrote to, in my response to the person that if the analyst, in this case, the analyst who's doing the reliability prediction is assuming constant failure rate, then that assumption is often erroneous mm-hmm. and the corresponding output's not useful. So the, the, the problem with the prediction has multiple problems in relation, in, in relation to its value in the FMEA. And, yeah. and one of those problems is oftentimes the assumptions that go into that prediction are wrong. And even <laughs> if it's correct, it's assigned to the component rather than the failure mode yeah. and corresponding cause. Well, there's the assumptions that it's the lock lack of linking the component level reliability to the failure mode that matters that's which we're trying to judge or adjudicate or whatever or prioritize um, I think it also gives us a false security blanket that really should not be worn um, and a lot of the failure the input into failure rate predictions um, one assumes it's normal back to the assumption or uh, constant hazard rate, but it also is usually out of date and doesn't apply to your particular circumstance. And it's a subjective thing that includes many pieces of information that is not the failure rate. 
It's failure distribution, yeah. our experience, how does it work in our particular design, all, I mean, all that stuff. So there's, yeah, it's just don't do that. <laughs> yeah, just don't do it. <laughs> you know? Well, and the, you want to have, you want to be informed when you're doing an FME with information and clearly field history can be informative. I like to use that history as part of the failure mode identification because right. you don't want to repeat failure modes that you've seen. But the whole concept of the occurrence rating is, is, is different than that. You're, we're get, getting the likelihood of that failure mode and associated cause. One other thing I'll mention is I've seen some applications, software applications, that take the occurrence rating, which is subjective in an FMEA, and they assign a number to it. They, they create, okay, here's a range. If it's an occurrence seven on a scale of one to 10, we're gonna give it a certain failure rate. Yeah, 2000 okay. fit or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And then we're gonna, we're gonna create a system reliability model. We're gonna push a button, and then you take your system hierarchy that's embedded in the FMEA, where you've done different FMEAs, you pull the occurrence rating and convert it into a failure rate, and then you create a system reliability model. And I do not like that. Yeah, I've run into a number of them that do that. And they, they're saying, well, then it gets worse. Is then they use uh, the prediction module to inform the occurrence rating. They pre-fill it in for you. And, and yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> Seriously? Well, so much of the value of the FMEA is in the discussion. You get people looking at and considering things and talking back and forth and you come up with some amazing things by that deep discussion that you don't get by the automated and you know there's a lot of uh, understandable i mean systems are complex there's a lot of need for modeling there's a lot of need for and and uh, talk about uh, automation and and those are all things that can be beneficial if they're done with the right assumptions and the mm -hmm. right models uh, but what isn't useful is if you have wrong assumptions, wrong models, but then check the box that, and then automatically fill in the occurrence rating or well, something like that. Well, it goes like back that. to that, you know, artificial, uh, I, it looks good, it smells good, you know, and if, but we're not going to look at it too closely kind of thing. It's like, oh, that's a problem. Mm. Now, you mentioned using field data going after failure modes. I've run into teams that they really need to pay attention to their prototypes, in, in their early mock-ups and stuff. What kinds of failures have they seen to date in the development process and get over that concept of, well, that's a one-off without any failure analysis done to it? Absolutely. That also is, I should be gathered into the input into what are the failure modes and types of things they've seen as part of that discussion. Even one-offs, those sometimes totally end up agree. being really valuable. The gather information checklist I have has field data as one input, but another, like you said, it's the it's the failures you see during product development mm -hmm. and early testing sometimes. Uh, I also like to interview subject matter experts to to say, what are you concerned about? Yep, engineering They judgment. often have uh, concerns that you might not pull from the earlier warranty data and things like that. Yep, yep, yeah. No, it, it, no, it was a good question, but it was like, oh, yeah. You know, I knew there was more to it than I was going to put in that email. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to follow up and send him a link to the episode. It might be a, a while before it comes out, but it's a, the idea. Um, yeah, no, if you've, you know, if you're working on 
Oh my God. Can you imagine using uh, a chat bot to fill in your occurrence rating for you? Oh my God, it's going to happen. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it will. Right, it's going to happen. <laughs> so. <laughs> and, and it goes back to, yeah, there's all kinds of innovations. There's all kinds of cool tools and activities out there, but it doesn't supplant that you actually need to think. And I think Chris Jackson says that all the time. You can't check the brain at the door. You know, you got to, reliability requires thinking. And yeah, some of these tools and stuff make it look great, but it's not there. So I wonder what other challenges are out there that are, are similar here. Um, so anyway, if, if you're listening to this and you, you think of, a question or this is a process that you're using and what kind of results are you getting? What kind of output does it actually achieve? You know, what kind of benefits are you getting if you're using predictions in some way? I'm open to it. I know it has some value at some point in time, but if used properly, but, or if you've got any other questions, like Carl said, he gets a handful uh, every week. I get a handful every week and we draw from those to one, get you answers, but also for topics for us to talk about. So if you'd like to join the conversation, let us know. Head over to AscendoReliability.com slash go slash SOR. And there's a couple ways to get in touch with us there. You can get all of Carl and I and the other hosts of the show through LinkedIn or on our site, Ascendo Reliability, under contributors. There's our plenty of ways to get in touch with each of us. So we look forward to hearing from you. So that, Carl, I'm just not going to do an FMEA today as protest. I'm just going to Oh, you're going to stand it. back? And yeah, I'm going to stand back and wait till tomorrow and collect my thoughts. Very good. <laughs> well, nice discussion. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Fred. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.